the Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshevsky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey everyone, welcome to week four, focusing on pregnancy and postpartum. If you didn't listen to week two, I just wanted to highlight that we're skipping week three as it's all Arian chapters that are also on pregnancy and postpartum. So if you're scrambling to find those week three articles on the podcast, you're in luck. They don't exist. Today is an article on the musculoskeletal aspects of pregnancy by Jay Borgstein and S. Dugan and Jay Gruber, published in 2005. It's a hefty one, so buckle yourselves in. It's estimated that virtually all women experience some degree of musculoskeletal discomfort during pregnancy, and 25% have at least temporarily disabling symptoms. This review provides information on common pregnancy-related musculoskeletal conditions, including a discussion of anatomy and physiology, diagnosis, prognosis, and a treatment of those disorders. The first piece is a bit of a review on the pelvic walls, given that we have an anterior, posterior, lateral, and inferior wall. The anterior pelvic wall is a shallow wall formed by the posterior surfaces of the pubic bones and the pubic symphysis. The posterior pelvic wall is a more extensive wall that consists of the sacrum, the coccyx, and the piriformis muscle. The lateral pelvic wall is a component of the pelvis formed by the part of the innominate bone, the obturator foramen, sacrotuberous and sacrospinous ligaments, and the obturator internus muscle and its fascia. The inferior pelvic wall of the pelvic floor consists of the levator ani muscles, coccygeus, and pelvic fascia. We can only assess these structures through internal, vaginal, or rectal exams. Some reminders about the joint structures, including the SI joints and the pubic symphysis. Remember that the SI joints are synovial joints. They're very strong posterior and interosseous ligaments that connect the sacrum and the ilium. If you're forgetting what a synovial joint technically is, here's a refresher. Synovial joints allow for movement. So where the bones meet to form a synovial joint, the bone surfaces are covered with that thin layer of a strong, smooth, articular cartilage. A very thin layer of slippery, viscous joint fluid, called synovial fluid, separates and lubricates the two cartilage-covered bone surfaces. Some other examples of synovial joints within the body include things like the shoulder, the hip, the elbows, and the knees. The pubic symphysis is a cartilaginous joint between the two pubic bones. The pubic symphysis is surrounded by ligaments, and there's a lot of mechanical stressors at that joint during pregnancy. Finally, the sacrococcygeal joint is also a cartilaginous joint that is joined by ligaments. Compared to males, the female pelvis is broader, it's rounder, and it has an ovoid shape and a roomier pelvic cavity. The ischial tuberosities are everted too. The sacrum is shorter, it's wider, and flatter, and the anterior pubic arch is going to be rounder and wider. Regarding the nerves of the pelvis, the lumbosacral trunk passes down into the pelvis and joins the sacral nerves as they emerge from the anterior sacral foramina. From a clinical perspective, the important nerve branches that are associated with clinical syndromes of pregnancy and childbirth are going to include structures that involve the sciatic, the obturator, the femoral, the lateral femoral cutaneous, and the pudendal nerves. Let's talk about some physiologic changes during pregnancy. Swelling is a really common complaint, and 80% of women report soft tissue edema. Remember that the increased fluid retention can predispose tenosynovial or nerve entrapments. Ligamentous laxity is another physiologic change of pregnancy. It's related to the production of the hormones relaxin and estrogen. 
There may be a correlation between mean serum relaxin levels during pregnancy and symphysial pain or low back pain. There's an initial increase of relaxin levels until a peak value at the 12th week, followed by a decline until the 17th week. So if you've had patients with unbearable pain for a few weeks that suddenly resolves itself, this might make more sense to you. The pubic symphysis naturally begins widening at 10 to 12 weeks. Opinions lead towards relaxin influencing this, but some providers call the pubic symphysis the pubic symphysis diastasis too, just so you're kind of aware. This can be associated with some joint tenderness and is usually exacerbated with exercise. Remember that normal widening of that pubic symphysis joint does not exceed 10 millimeters. While weight gain is normal in pregnancy, just knowing that 20% increase in weight can affect the force on a joint by as much as 100% is important for this population. Not in an effort to encourage weight loss, but in order to allow patients to recognize that things might be feeling harder to do or more painful because they truly biomechanically are. Everyone knows that pregnancy posture of hyperlordosis and the anterior pelvic tilt. The sacroiliac joints resist that forward rotation. As pregnancy progresses, both forward rotation and hyperlordosis increase as the sacroiliac joints become lax. So these factors contribute to an increased mechanical strain on the low back, the sacroiliac joints, and the pelvis. Pubic symphysis pain is a very common complaint during pregnancy. Pubic symphysis regional pain occurs as a result of increased motion related to that ligamentous laxity. In a European study, it was estimated that the prevalence of this condition is one in every 36 women. Osteitis pubis is characterized by bony resorption around the pubic symphysis followed by a spontaneous reossification. For this, pubic symphysis pain typically has a gradual onset over the course of a few days to excruciating pain radiating down the thighs and into the inner groin. Movement typically exacerbates the pain. Sometimes providers will encourage bed rest, anti-inflammatories after birth, and potentially a walker for pressure relief. Less commonly, but something I've seen just a few times that this article mentions is an injection. So an intrasymphyseal injection of lidocaine and steroids may shorten the duration of symptoms. Rupture of the pubic symphysis refers to a true rupture of the ligaments supporting the pubic symphysis and is very rare. This is believed to occur as a result of the wedging effect of the forceful descent of the fetal head against the pelvic ring, usually during a delivery, creating a separation of more than one centimeter. Less commonly, some case studies point towards the mechanism of injury coming from the forceful and excessive abduction of the thighs during labor. Some patients may report having heard an audible crack or just a sudden onset of pain radiating down their legs. There can also be a palpable gap and some soft tissue swelling. Treatment tends to be conservative in nature, things like bed rest, encouragement of sideline positions, pelvic binders, and assistive devices are often encouraged. In some extremely rare circumstances with continuation of symptoms, that may warrant a surgical stabilization with an open reduction and an internal fixation. Severe pelvic dislocation of pregnancy is extremely rare. This would be a simultaneous rupture of the symphysis pubis and the sacroiliac joints with a resultant pelvic dislocation. All patients in a series from Boston develop persistent sacroiliac pain after being managed with closed reduction. These authors suggest consideration of an operative approach to patients with symphysial diastasis of more than four centimeters, which is pretty large, especially considering that 10 centimeters was that average amount of spatial movement. Okay, onto low back pain within pregnancy. The epidemiology of low back pain in pregnancy demonstrates incident rates of approximately 50% among retrospective reviews. Rates have been found to increase with advancing maternal age, back pain during previous pregnancies, and an increased number of previous births. 
No consistent relationship has been found with height, weight, or weight gain of the mother or weight of the baby. This article noted that only 32% of women with low back pain during pregnancy reported it to their providers, which makes sense, because two lines later they mentioned that of these providers, only 25% of them recommended any specific treatments. Back pain continues into postpartum period up to 45% of these women as well, the biggest predictor of that being any history of low back pain. After 24 months, the biggest risk factors seem to be the onset of severe pain early in pregnancy and the inability to reduce weight to pre-pregnancy levels. Causes are going to include mechanical strains, pelvic ligamentous laxity, sacroiliac pain, vascular compression, spondylolisthesis, discogenic pain, and hip pain. Probably the most popular theory for the cause of nonspecific low back pain of pregnancy is the growing uterus and accompanying compensatory lumbar lordosis contributing to that substantial mechanical stress on that lower back. The tendency for pelvic rotation is increased as that lumbar rotation increases too. So these altered biomechanics combined with hormonal laxity can further increase that pelvic and low back strain. Lumbar disc herniations within pregnancy, although relatively uncommon, are estimated to occur in approximately one in every 10,000 cases of lumbosacral pain in pregnancy. Non-contrast MRI can be used to determine this, though many providers are going to wait until that postpartum period in order to check that. Per these authors, there's no recognized adverse biological effects of MRI on the developing fetus that's been identified, although the long-term effects of MRI on the developing fetus has not been fully evaluated. Another hypothesis suggests that the vascular system may play an important role in low back pain during pregnancy. Prolonged time in the supine position leads to obstruction of the vena cava, Going even further on this thought, increased pressure in venous stasis in combination with a decrease in basal oxygen saturation may lead to hypoxia and compromise the metabolic supply of the neural structures, which would then result in pain. In rare instances, some women can develop spondylolisthesis. If it's been a while for you with conditions like these, remember that on physical exam, there can actually be that step-off sign in the lumbar spine. What's interesting, though, is they noted that women with previously diagnosed spondylolisthesis, there's no increase in low back pain or increase in slippage during pregnancy found. So if you were diagnosed with it before pregnancy, consider yourself safe. It's also noted that low back pain may be unrelated to the presence of this anatomic finding in those who do have it, as joint and muscle pain may be a larger underlying factor. For lumbar spine pain, this article encourages a full physical exam, including neurological testing, joint tenderness assessment, and a hip exam. They mentioned some sacroiliac compression tests, bimanual compression over the iliac crests, and Patrick's tests to elicit sacroiliac pain. Remember that these are physicians, so we assume that this is very common and normal, but that may not be a part of their everyday structure of assessment. When we take a look at treatment, this article reports most respond to activity, scheduled rest periods, and postural modifications. While we know a regular exercise program before pregnancy reduces the risk for back pain during pregnancy, it's important to wait until that acute low back pain subsides before establishing any consistent exercise routine. This article recommends PT and notes that pelvic tilts, abdominal and low back focused exercises, and aquatic therapy were helpful as well. Several studies suggest the use of a non-elastic maternity support binder in order to help reduce symptoms of posterior pelvic pain. They also noted that some women responded well to acupuncture. The medication of choice for pain relief is acetaminophen because antiprostaglandins like aspirin and the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are relatively contraindicated during pregnancy. 
Of note, the authors report that there's no literature examining the safety or efficacy of epidural steroid injections during pregnancy. For those very rare conditions like cauda equina syndrome, surgery for lumbar disc herniation during pregnancy can be safely performed. Now for some more common concerns, peripheral nerve entrapments. Peripheral nerves are susceptible to injury in the pregnant, laboring, and postpartum woman by several mechanisms. Those are including compression, traction, ischemia, and less commonly laceration. Lower limb peripheral nerves and the lumbar plexus are more biomechanically likely to be injured with labor and delivery. Upper limb peripheral nerves are more likely to be injured through those repetitive motions or positioning. Upper limb neuropathies, like carpal tunnel, can also occur during pregnancy due to that peripheral edema increase. Compression and traction are the most common mechanisms of peripheral nerve entrapment in pregnancy and postpartum. Compression neuropathies are the most common in anatomic locations where excess pressure can occur, like the median nerve in the carpal tunnel, or in superficial nerves like the common perineal nerve at the fibular head. In general, nerves with tightly packed fasciculi and thin endoneurum are more susceptible to compression. Pregnancy-related swelling and prolonged positioning increase compressive forces resulting in increased prevalence of compression neuropathies. Labor and delivery is also associated with compressive mononeuropathies and lumbosacral plexopathies. Traction neuropathies result when there's a stretch applied to the nerve that exceeds the neural and connective tissue elastic capacity. A combination of compression and stretch may result in decreased perineural blood flow and ischemic injury. The most common injuries in pregnancy and postpartum are less severe injuries that cause that focal demyelination and conduction block. These generally have really good recovery. Other common complaints within our pregnancy population includes carpal tunnel syndrome and lateral femoral cutaneous neuropathy. For carpal tunnel syndrome, or otherwise known as that median neuropathy at the wrist, this is the second most common symptom with pregnancy, with up to 25% of women experiencing it. The median nerve can be entrapped at the wrist in the enclosed space formed by the carpal bones and the overlying transverse carpal ligament. This typically presents with pain and paresthesias in the first three digits of the hand, often bilaterally, and is most frequently diagnosed during the third trimester. The pain can worsen at night or during the day with repetitive wrist flexion or extension. Peripheral edema has been implied with pregnancy-related carpal tunnel syndrome and is more common in older, more primiparous women. For those of our patients that are nursing, that prolactin and fluid retention coupled with awkward positioning of the wrist can cause that prolonged carpal tunnel syndrome. Although this study reported 95% of women have resolution of symptoms within two weeks postpartum, which I think is a pretty enormous finding, this also contributes largely to why management is tending to be conservative in nature. This article encouraged splinting of the wrist in a neutral position, using thermoplastic night splints for two weeks, and they noted that this provided relief of symptoms in 80% of those experiencing carpal tunnel syndrome. We're also going to think about education on body mechanics and proper positioning. Now, don't forget that steroid injections are useful in patients with those continued significant symptoms. Most uncommonly recommended is surgical interventions, and this would be following conclusive ongoing symptomology and a positive electrodiagnostic study. Okay, on to lateral femoral cutaneous neuropathy, or the moralgia paresthetica. The lateral femoral cutaneous nerve is pure sensory, supplying the sensation to the anterior lateral thigh. It passes slightly medial and inferior to the anterior superior iliac spine after exiting the pelvis by traveling under the inguinal ligament. 
Injury to the nerve causes burning, pain, or numbness in the region of the innervation known as myalgia parasthetica syndrome. Risk factors for the lateral femoral cutaneous neuropathy includes pregnancy combined with obesity, diabetes, trauma, belt pressure, and anatomic variations. Pregnant women are 12 times more likely to experience this than those who are not. In patients whose lateral femoral cutaneous nerve bisects the inguinal ligament, the accentuated lumbar lordosis of pregnancy is thought to lead to the increased risk of nerve compression. So that would be one of those anatomic variations they were just talking about. C-section delivery may infrequently lead to myalgia parasthetica from a wide incision, stretching, or that retractor placement, although the prevalence does not vary substantially with delivery method. Same as carpal tunnel syndrome, this typically resolves after delivery. The diagnosis is typically clinical. The nerve conduction study of the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve can be difficult to obtain, even in healthy asymptomatic individuals. Recommendations for pregnant patients include avoiding of tight-fitting clothes at the hip or repetitively carrying children on the same side of the hip. Consideration of frequent position changes for laboring with avoidance of prolonged hip flexion may reduce compression on the lateral femoral nerve. Also, shortening pushing time by allowing the baby to descend into that perineum without active maternal pushing can reduce nerve compression retraction as well. Improvements in modern obstetric practice might be responsible for a reduction in nerve injury rates of almost 5% since the turn of the century. A more recent prospective study of more than 6,000 women who delivered in a one-year period found an almost 1% rate of injury, which is great. Injury rate was not associated with obstetric anesthesia, but rather nulliparity and prolonged pushing. Many studies are limited by lack of EMG documentation because the injuries are very frequently short in duration and new moms just might not follow up for that EMG study before their symptoms resolve. Femoral neuropathy is a common nerve injury typically related to the duration of labor and delivery. With prolonged second stage labor, compression of the femoral nerve under the inguinal ligament can happen. Stretch or ischemia to the intrapelvic, poorly vascularized portion of the femoral nerve may be another mechanism of injury. Remember the femoral nerve doesn't descend through that true pelvis. Sometimes, in cases where the iliopsoas muscle is found to be weak among with the quads, the lesion may be proximal to the inguinal ligament where branches to the iliopsoas occur. That femoral neuropathy can clinically look like trouble with stair negotiation, walking, and transfers. So you OBPTs are truly key in the evaluation and treatment for offering those patients assistive devices and proper care prior to discharging home. Now let's go back to the upper limb and talk about what is often called mommy thumb in our clinic. Dequervian's tenosynovitis is an inflammatory condition of the abductor pollicis longus and the extensor pollicis brevis tendons of the first dorsal compartment of the wrist. We find this in pregnancy and postpartum with localized pain along the radial aspect of the wrist. Fluid retention related to hormonal status is suspected in the pathophysiology in pregnant and lactating women. Based on that, it's important to let patients know that these symptoms may persist until nursing is discontinued. This isn't in an effort to encourage them to stop nursing, but I think it's fair most people would like to have the light at the end of the tunnel and understand their condition more before more aggressive treatment options. Let's go into some diagnosis of this. Clinical diagnosis is based on history, symptom location, and local tenderness over the first dorsal compartment. Provocative maneuvers include Finkelstein's test, which if you haven't done in a minute, is where the pain is provoked with ulnar deviation of the wrist with the thumb flexed inside a closed fist. This is a self-limited diagnosis, so we're looking at activity modification. We're looking at thumb spica splints and anti-inflammatory medications for our postpartum groups. 
Worth noting, local corticosteroid injections were shown to be more effective than splinting in a study of 18 patients. They do those injections in pregnancy and in postpartum. Okay, back down to the lower body, we're looking at the hip pain in pregnancy. As noted before, there are conditions of the low back and pelvic girdle that can be present with associated hip pain and should be included in the differential diagnosis. We also know intraarticular hip pathology can refer to the pelvis and the back and can be misdiagnosed as pelvic instability. Some more worrisome hip diagnoses include transient osteoporosis of the hip or osteonecrosis of the femoral head. So that's why differential diagnosis is so important. And just to keep those in mind, when we have those antalgic gait patterns and we're finding symptoms that just don't fit our more common diagnoses. Let's start with transient osteoporosis of the hip. It's a rare condition. It presents with weight-bearing hip pain, usually in the third trimester of pregnancy. This usually resolves with conservative therapy, but may predispose to hip fracture or progression to avascular necrosis. The patient typically presents with progressively worsening unilateral or bilateral hip pain without any prior history of trauma. This article goes on to talk about imaging such as x-rays and MRIs and its role in revealing osteoporosis of the femoral head and neck with preserved joint space. For PTs, our role is early recognition and treatment with protective weight-bearing to allow the condition to be self-limited and without long-term consequences. The prognosis for natural recovery is good if the osteoporosis is associated with pregnancy and not related to pre-existing osteoporosis predated to pregnancy. Moving on to avascular necrosis of the femoral head, this has been reported in pregnant women with no additional risk factors for avascular necrosis. The symptoms typically occur in the third trimester similar to transient osteoporosis with weight-bearing pain in the hip, pelvis, or groin, and at times radiating even to the knee. Several theories regarding the pathogenesis have been proposed, including higher adrenocortical activity combined with weight gain and higher levels of female sex hormones in conjunction with increased interosseous pressures. Restricted weight-bearing is initiated to prevent progression of femoral head necrosis with definitive treatment after delivery as appropriate. Of course, x-ray and MRIs are always helpful in delineating that pathology. There are also other causes of lower limb pain with pregnancy. In one case-controlled study of about 100 postpartum and matched nulliparous controls, they were surveyed regarding lower limb pain and complaints. The postpartum subjects were twice as likely as the nulliparous controls to have symptoms of leg and foot pain. The majority of the postpartum women noted the onset of lower limb pain during the second or third trimester of pregnancy. History of regular exercise was not protective or causative of pain related to pregnancy. Ligamentous laxity may be associated with lower limb injury. I know we just talked about female athletes, so this part of the article was kind of interesting. A case study documented transient laxative of the anterior cruciate ligament in a pregnant woman during her third trimester and postpartum period. This patient's anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction was performed two months before conception. So relaxation-related dissociation of large collagen fibrils was thought to be the cause. They recommended education and observation for women who are pregnant a few months after ACL reconstruction. Also, the labrum of the hip or the meniscus of the knee may be at greater risk of injury during pregnancy. Two cases of pregnant women presenting with acute locking of the knee were reported, including urgent arthroscopic repair of a torn meniscus. The authors report history of previous injury in the area, current injury in the adjacent areas, or systemic metabolic conditions should be associated with these acute musculoskeletal injuries in pregnancy. Sacral and tibial stress fractures, rib fractures, and vertebral fractures are documented in pregnant women related to osteoporosis. 
In a case study of pregnant women with normal lumbar and femoral bone density, bilateral sacral stress fractures were related to stress fractures due to the unaccustomed loading in the last trimester. Other exercise-induced musculoskeletal injuries include recurrent ankle sprains or patellofemoral symptoms. These authors recommended our favorite rice management for these, as well as protected mobility as we may do with non-pregnant patients. Musculoskeletal injuries tend to also follow conservative measures, but if surgery is required, local and regional anesthetics are used due to their better safety profile. Remember that first trimester general anesthesia is associated with a slightly increased risk of spontaneous abortion. Okay, let's go over ACOG's recommendations for exercise in pregnancy. As PTs who focus on exercise, I think it's fair to say that knowing these absolute and relative contraindications versus those warning signs to terminate exercise are pretty vital. Absolute contraindications to aerobic exercise during pregnancy include the following. One, hemodynamically significant heart disease. Two, restrictive lung disease, which as an interesting note, COVID is considered a restrictive lung defect in some studies. Three, incompetent cervix or cerclage. If you're not familiar with the cerclage, definitely Google it for a visual. It's an interesting procedure where the cervical opening is closed with stitches to prevent or delay preterm birth. Number four, persistent bleeding in second or third trimester. Five, placenta labor during pregnancy. Six, ruptured membranes. Seven, preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension. On that note, remember that vitals are vital. Blood pressure takes a minute. If you don't have time in the clinic on eval, let them know how important it is for the baby's health if you're doing aerobic exercise in the clinic and that they can check it before they come. Let's move into some relative contraindications to aerobic exercise in pregnancy. So for relative contraindications, one would be severe anemia, two, unevaluated cardiac arrhythmia, three, chronic bronchitis, four, uncontrolled diabetes, Five, extreme morbid obesity. Six, extreme underweight. Seven, history of extreme sedentary lifestyle. Eight, orthopedic limitations. Nine, poorly controlled seizure disorder. Ten, poorly controlled hyperthyroidism. And eleven, heavy smoking. Lastly, our warning signs for terminating exercise while being pregnant. This doesn't specify aerobic or not. I also think while the absolute and relative contraindications are important, often we may not even be referred those patients with those factors. But direct access is a totally different story, right? Okay, so some warning signs. One, vaginal bleeding. Two, shortness of breath prior to exertion. Three, dizziness. Four, headache. Five, chest pain. Six, muscle weakness. Seven, calf pain or swelling. With this, we're thinking that thrombophlebitis. 8. Preterm labor, 9. Decreased fetal movement, and 10. Amniotic fluid leaking. So why do we care about these contraindications and warning signs? Besides the fact that we're good and knowledgeable therapists who care about our patients. Exercise recommendations have evolved over the last several decades. Traditionally, women were instructed to reduce exercise and non-exercisers were told not to initiate exercise while being pregnant. So being able to progress and regress patients based off their symptoms and understanding those symptoms are really vital in an area where now we're encouraging exercise and supporting pregnant mothers who are choosing to exercise more. Given this article was written in 2005, it's fair to assume that some recommendations have changed again. 
Within the first trimester, if there's a severe and persistent elevation in the maternal body temperature, the authors noted this is the same time as the neural tube closure and organogenesis, and that has been linked to birth defects. So they recommend moderate exercise intensity with loose-fitting clothing in ventilated areas to help prevent persistent elevation in body temperature. Later in pregnancy, the reversal of the hyperglycemic response may cause hypoglycemia in an exercising mother due to increasing fetal placental energy demands. More recent studies have not confirmed the increased risk of mother or fetus with with moderate aerobic or strength training exercise in women with uncomplicated pregnancies. One study showed that participation in moderate recreational activity the year before pregnancy and during early pregnancy was associated with reduced preeclampsia risk. Other great things to note with exercise in pregnancy includes higher infant APGAR scores, decreased C-section rates, and prevention of gestational diabetes when diet alone didn't normalize those blood sugars. ACOG was a little vague in their recommendation, but let's brief over them. ACOG recommends that women who are inactive before pregnancy or whose pregnancy is complicated by medical or obstetric problems are advised to seek medical advice for specific individualized exercise recommendations. For pregnant women previously active in recreational sports and exercise, the 2003 ACOG guidelines recommend women should continue to be active during pregnancy and modify their usual routine as medically indicated. For competitive athletes engaged in strenuous sports, they note that information is limited and they recommend close medical supervision. The 2003 Canadian Clinical Practice Guidelines for Exercise in Pregnancy and the Postpartum Period provide a little bit more specific recommendations. These guidelines recommend that previously sedentary women should be counseled to begin with 15 minutes of continuous exercise three times per week and work towards a goal of 30 minutes four times per week. The Canadian guidelines also review practical issues of exercise intensity, recommending the use of the Borg scale of perceived exertion with target rating of that 12 to 14, which is the somewhat hard for exercise. The Canadian recommendations also go beyond the ACOG guidelines in including initiation of pelvic floor exercises in the immediate postpartum period and advising mothers that moderate exercise is encouraged while nursing. So thanks for that, Canada. Both the American and Canadian guidelines warn against activities with high risk for falling or abdominal trauma. They also agree that scuba diving is a big no, and to be wary of altitude training exercises. High altitude hiking and climbing is definitely a more common thing that I discuss with my patients than the scuba diving. Here's the best part of the article that we love to see. The authors recommend working closely with a PT or an OT. So if there's any pelvic trained OTs listening, love to see you in this niche. They report well-trained physical and occupational therapists with specific interest in this area can be extremely helpful in assisting the pregnant women with management of musculoskeletal dysfunctions. They also note that therapists can provide appropriate exercise and education in body mechanics, ergonomics, posture, energy conservation, and activity modification. They go on to discuss physical agents and modalities that PTs and OTs may use. Pregnancy is believed to be a contraindication to therapeutic ultrasound in 80% of sources. Superficial heat is contraindicated according to 27% of their sources, and this is due to maternal hyperthermia. Therefore, precaution should be considered with hot pack application to the low back and the abdomen, utilizing some extra towels. Similarly, immersion in a warm whirlpool or hot tub can produce maternal hyperthermia as well. Diathermy is contraindicated due to the deep heat effect and exposure to electromagnetic fields. Traction is a relative contraindication throughout the spine due to ligamentous laxity. 
Electric stimulation should not be applied to areas of the low back, abdomen, or hip or girdle in order to avoid the potential reach to the fetus. Although electric current effects of the fetus aren't quite understood, some studies in animals show no adverse effects. The electrical current of transcutaneous nerve stimulation may actually be used safely during uncomplicated labor and delivery for pain control, so just a thought for that. In a meta-analysis of six randomized placebo-controlled trials, transcutaneous nerve stimulation was found to provide some relief of back pain. Therapists can instruct patients in the use of transcutaneous nerve stimulation and appropriate electrode placement before their delivery date. For orthoses, we are commonly asked about belly bands and pelvic supports. Limited evidence has been found to support the effectiveness of back supports in the general population. A pilot study evaluating the use of maternity back supports found a reduction in pain scores in a small population. There's really no adverse effect of maternally there's really no adverse effect of belly bands and there's also no hemodynamic effects on the fetus or the maternal mother. The last thing the authors discuss includes therapeutic exercise. They mention that exercise in a normal temperature pool water being beneficial given the effect of buoyancy and controlling peripheral edema. There's also a lower heart rate response with exercise in the water. Pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy has been shown to prevent urinary incontinence during pregnancy and after delivery. A study demonstrated that participants in a 12-week intensive pelvic floor muscle training program during pregnancy had significantly less urinary incontinence during pregnancy and after delivery. Finally, individualized physical therapy programs have been found more effective than group sessions for the reduction of pain and sick leave due to back pain in pregnancy. These sessions that they looked at included exercise, postural training, ergonomics, once weekly over a five-week period. Okay, that may have been our longest episode so far. So what are our take-home points? I think one is the importance of differential diagnosis with our pregnancy patients regarding their low back, hip, and pelvic pain. Encouraging and understanding the pathology of injuries can best help us educate these patients on conditions that may resolve over time and ways to best manage them just in the meantime. ACOG guidelines are also extremely important for us regarding contraindications and warning signs for exercise during pregnancy. So print those out if you need to see a visualization of them. Review them as you need. I think lists are sometimes better visualized. So that's episode one in week four. Pregnancy and postpartum is a great section that I think everyone benefits from reviewing, even if you're working with this population all day, every day. Next up, we have another article by Borgstein in 2007, and this is on the musculoskeletal disorders of pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum. I believe our third article is by them as well, but it's a 2011 article. So I hope to see you all listening at our next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye.